0: Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Let's Talk About Public Code, a show where we're pleased to have, we're happy to have members of our community who are actively working with public code code codebases. My name is Alba Roza, and I am one of the codebase stewards of the Foundation for Public Code. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Jain Ainali, who's also a codebase steward at the Foundation. Welcome, Jan.
1: Hello, Alba. Ready for a new episode?
0: Yes, ready and also very nice to have you back and of course nice to to be back for me too in this 10th episode already. In the conversation today we'll talk to a person that knows her way around the open source communities pretty well I would say, right?
1: Yes, today we're joined by Leslie Hawthorne from Red Hat and she is formerly a Senior Principal Technical Program Manager at the Open Source Program Office but right now she's the Senior Manager for Vertical Community Strategy.
0: Yeah, let's say hi to her, right?
1: Yes. Welcome, Leslie.
0: Hello, everyone. Thanks very much for having me. Hi, Leslie. Welcome. Nice to have you here.
1: So, first off, we want to give full disclosure and also thank you because you are on our strategic council here at the Foundation for Public Code. And since it's so new, perhaps you can talk a little bit about what you see in the future of it, or perhaps even to start you off, like, what do you think is the future of public code?
2: Sure, absolutely. Okay, so I'll I'll take that that question in two parts. So in terms of what I think about as the future for the strategic council, I will give full disclosure that one of the reasons why I was very excited to join the strategic council was because the requirements were effectively help the foundation for public code advance its mission. And we will largely be in contact with you when we have a question or we need, we need advice or we need a connection, but we're largely just looking to you to be the human being you are in the world. And we'll phone a friend when we need your assistance, which is great for me because, you know, one, I'm deeply committed to the works that you folks are doing, but like, you know, like everyone who has lots of cool stuff that they work on, I'm very busy. So I think that as far as the future of the strategic council, if I were to pause it, I think you're, you folks are just gonna continue to collect individuals who are gonna be able to be helpful to you in strategic parts of your mission and are gonna be there to give you useful advice. But frankly, you, you know what you're doing. So, so more often than not, I find myself on a phone call going, that sounds fantastic. Yes, that's a great idea. I would totally do that. Have you thought about talking to this person? And that's, that's kind of my job. And it's a, it's a great job to have. <laughs> um, when I think about the future for public code, um, that's that's something that I can talk about in you know much greater detail just because I see an explosion in the potential for public code. And we even have a swath of recent announcements to to support that, right. Like if we look to our friends in Germany and the coalition government has just published its platform, and you know, there's a call there for if there are tenders for, code to be created for public administrations, the results of those tenders should be open source. So again, the Free Software Foundation Europe's called for public money, public code. We're seeing instantiated in the um, the German platform. We had our friends in France just a couple of weeks ago, at uh, open source experience in Paris, talk to us about how, you know, the French government is also putting in place plans to prefer open source software for public tenders, etc. So, and we all, I also in my... Um, I would say my travels, but obviously we're all not, not visiting anywhere. And my opportunities to talk to folks in the community. I'm you know, I'm hearing more and more different groups who are looking at ways in which open source software can be of value to public administration. So, you know, my friends in, in the open cities group in the Czech Republic, I had the opportunity to talk to some folks who were you know, working in the city of Paris, you know, their chief open source officer Philip, when I was in, you know, Paris a couple of weeks ago for the conference. And there's clear appetite for and now policy mandate around preferring public code when spending, you know, income from the taxpayers. And I am I am hugely supportive of that as a resident of Europe for any number of reasons, but it, it now seems like we've progressed past the folks clearly understand that this is a good idea to now we're looking at implementing it from a policy perspective. And as it is implemented from a policy perspective, then where is the community going to evolve to in order to be able to meet the demand from those policy mandates? So I'm thrilled that I got to meet some of the principals for the Foundation for Public Code years ago at an event put on by the European Commission called Open Source Beyond 2020. And then to meet... So many of the folks working at the foundation the next year at the community dev room at FOSDEM and to understand that, you know, that some of the work we've done in that dev room over the years has been influential in helping you folks get your work done. And now, you know, here we are a couple of years later and there's just this proliferation and blossoming of this throughout Europe. And it's really exciting for me as a a longtime open source community person and advocate to see that this is now taking shape in the political realm of, of the place I call home. I'm really, really excited about it and I'm really I'm delighted that I know you guys and I'm, excuse me, I'm delighted that I know you nice human beings and I'm really happy to be on the podcast today.
0: Well, definitely and thank you. It goes both ways. The following question we were thinking about is, uh, of course, your area of expertise with capital letters, the communities, right? Mm -hmm. So we would like to know more about, I don't know, like, perhaps important ways of uh, or, or of impact efforts of strengthening the community so what are these important ways of impact efforts of strengthening the community has uh, on the development of a code base in your experience? Sorry, I formulated it very strangely, but I think you got it.
2: <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I think I did. So what I take your question to mean is what is the role of a strong community in developing robust and useful software, right? Exactly. So, so, yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Okay. There's nothing to apologize for. We're totally in sync. Um, I think. I think that there's a there's any number of different ways to answer that. So I'll, I'll probably try and hit on, you know, two or three high points. And if there's anything in particular, we should explore, maybe we'll get some audience questions. So part of the value of having a strong community around any software project is something that I think we, we all know and understand. But just to reiterate it, you know, no one group of individuals who gets together to do something that is exciting and valuable has all the answers, we will never have all the answers. And often, When there are open source projects or communities that get started, they get started because a group of people who know each other and who are largely in agreement about how to solve a problem decide to get together and solve a problem that is important to them. But that cannot be sustained forever. If you want the project to grow, if folks have a change in their interests, you wanna make sure that there is somebody who is equally excited to carry that work forward. So the power of a strong community is really a project's sustainability and its longevity and a diversity of perspectives. It's wonderful when we all get together as folks who are largely like-minded to solve a problem. But then what we find is we tend to think alike. You tend to be friends with folks that think like you, right? That's just being a normal human. So being able to have a strong community also involves, you know, growing that community and growing a diversity of perspectives within that community so that you make sure that whatever it is that you're producing is most valuable for all of the participants. And you know, from my own experience, I think about this in terms of, I have a daughter who is severely visually impaired. I think it has become profoundly important to me as a mother in this situation that we see more representation in our open source communities for folks who are differently abled so that we make sure that the code that we're producing in these open source projects that are now becoming increasingly important to public administrations is accessible is serving the most vulnerable citizens in our societies. And this isn't just folks like my own family, we have a rapidly aging population of seniors who will also benefit from this same focus on usability and accessibility, right? So community and having diverse perspectives means that we are able to meet the needs of our constituents and make that constituent base broad, but we can't do that without wide input. So that's one way in which uh, there's, there's that value in communities. Right. Uh, Another way in which it's important, you know, to have a a strong community around your project is you are not going to be able to do all of the work yourself. There are going to be some dedicated individuals who are really excited. Or if we look at, you know, the Foundation for Public Codes approach to the problem, in order to make sure that there are long term maintainers for these public software projects, we make sure to give them employment to do that work. Right. Without a community, you're not going to be able to carry that that work long-term and sustainably on your own, right? People need to take holiday, people decide to do something else with their existence. You need to have the ability for there to be succession within your community and to have, even for the, for the original participants or the, the core group of folks, just be able to explore new and interesting and exciting things. If you're doing the same thing day in, day out in order to maintain, there isn't always the space for imagination and creativity and growing. So having more folks around to not only share their diverse perspective with you, but also to share the load gives you the opportunity to have that space for thought and creativity and thinking about new, new things or new directions the project can go in. And the, the third and I think most important aspect of community and one we don't necessarily talk about a lot because it's one of those things that's hard to measure and this doesn't necessarily have a bottom line impact. We are human beings and we need friends. We need people to talk to. We need folks in our life who's in company and we enjoy and who are fellow travelers throughout existence with us. If your open source project does not have a place where people can come and feel like they have nurturing and autonomy and mastery and a place to exercise their craft and their expertise, whatever that may be, from writing software to producing beautiful documentation to doing a great podcast like this one to inform everyone in the community about what's going on the work doesn't get done. People need to have joy. And it turns out a lot of our joy, even if you're an introvert who plays an extrovert on TV like me, comes from interacting with the people that you like, who have similar interests and who care about the same things you do, right? So that social aspect, that feeling of identification and social cohesion, right, is a huge part of the community that keeps people having the energy to keep doing the work that they're doing, even if they're having a hard day or we're having a hard I don't know, it's like March 11th, 103rd or something nowadays. You know, that social fabric is so very important to the long-term sustainability of your project because people need to have joy in what we're doing. And a lot of our joy comes from the relationships we have with other people.
0: So important, that point. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and such a richness to your answer. Thank you for that. And that sort of brings me to a follow-up. What are the challenges to enable all of what you just described? And I I guess particularly in perhaps a professional context, not like any open source, but like where there are people who are being paid to contribute.
2: So I will start off by saying something that I've been saying for a very long time. And I wish I could remember who said this to me the first time. Software is easy. People are difficult. So I, I think the most useful way to think about this is the challenge is being able to explain to people, not only the value of the work that you are doing in your project, but also what is the value for them as a participant, and that can be very challenging in a community where you're working with a hybrid group of, say, volunteer contributors and paid professionals, because for the paid professional, what is in it for you is clearly your livelihood. Isn't it for you? Right, you are doing this for for pay and. I think most folks who are involved in, well, at least in my experience, a lot, almost all of the folks I work with who are involved in open source projects are not just involved in it because it's how they earn their livelihood, but they chose to earn their livelihood in that way because they feel a particular relationship with what we think of often as sort of traditional open source community values. So transparency, collaboration, you know, a rigorous evaluation of all of the the different ways in which the project can move forward and making sure that the the best one is chosen based on a wide variety of input and, you know, making sure all voices are heard. Right. And being able to create that environment in which there is transparency and there is, you know, kind of a, a sense of mutual accountability in a very positive way. Right. We are accountable for each other's success and we are accountable for making sure that if we make mistakes together, we fix them together. Right. That can be really challenging when you have folks with differing agendas. And I don't even mean that in like a negative way. If you have an employer, your employer expects certain outputs of your work product. And it may be that the folks that you are working with in the community don't don't necessarily see the same amount of value as your employer does. And they prefer to spend their energy over here. And it's not even that it's an assailatory relationship. It's just how do you rationalize these various sets of expectations to make sure that you can all continue working together effectively? And that's Of course, I'm going to say this because I've been doing community management forever, but this is where having a strong community management function comes into play because it is important that people are doing work that is in their, and I say this very specifically, enlightened self-interest, right? You want to make sure that what people are doing benefits them or they don't want to continue doing it. And you need to make sure it benefits the project, it benefits the community, it benefits the end users Of this software and helps to meet their needs and the only way to be able to do that effectively is having someone who is effectively able to understand all of those needs and whose job it is to understand all of those needs because it turns out if you're producing the software and you're understanding what someone expects of you to produce that software and you're trying to collaborate with other human beings and you're trying to maintain software systems guess what is the thing that no one has time for. The thing that no one has time for is understanding what everyone else needs and wants and how to make sure that they all get there because we we start off small and we're all friends and we all know how to help each other get where they need to go at first. And the more work we do and the more impact we have, the easier it is for that kind of automatic social cohesion and glue to crumble. You know, this is why community management and really thinking about how you're going to manage your community from the very start is such an important part of the long-term success of any project
0: right we mentioned before the slightly the prospect or the evolution of open source or how challenging or and how exciting it it is nowadays Mm -hmm. but i would like to ask you more particularly leslie about the ospos the open source Mm -hmm. program offices that are being raised right now, born and raised not only in associations where we were kind of used to see them, but also like in private companies. So Mm -hmm. what's your point of view about this?
2: Okay, so I have many different points of views kind of on the rise of the OSPO. So one thing that I note is uh, there's... You know, so having having come from America and spent, you know, a very early part of my career in a open source program office for, you know, a large American hyperscaler, you know, I have been present as the OSPO as a construct was really taking off for large corporations, um, at least in the United States. And what I'm seeing here that's that's very different. Is the, the open source strategy for these groups, in addition to, you know, a lot of passionate individuals who really cared about service to their community through code, was these were strategic groups within the organization that helped to make sure that there was adoption by developers of different products from these companies in the overall ecosystem that strengthened that company's position vis-a-vis, like people are using their APIs or, you know, embedding their products in other end products, et cetera. That's fantastic. Here in Europe, what I'm seeing is there are some organizations who are putting in place an open source program office that is largely about helping them to understand how to make the best use of open source software as consumers. And this isn't just things like license compliance. We have tools for that. But you know how to set a corporate strategy around understanding if there is an open source project that you are going to rely upon for your day-to-day operations. Is that project healthy? Is it sustainable? What contributions do we need to make to that project in terms of person hours or currency units in order to make sure that it continues to do its work successfully? And if we are going to devote resources to this project and we discover that it is no longer in keeping with our corporate objectives, how do we move along in a way that is graceful and does not mar our corporate reputation and leave us looking like we're not doing our best work in community? So that's, that's great. And that's kind of the corporate angle. And I'm, I'm also seeing, just based on, again, conversations I have in the community, folks that I would have never thought of having an OSPO start to think about having this institutionalizing their open source strategy in this structure called the OSPO, because it's a well-understood term. It's got a pretty good rough definition of, of what are kind of the tasks of an OSPO. So when I hear that like a large chain of, we call them hardware stores. They're the place where you go when you get your garden hose and your backyard plants and your pipe fittings and things. Wants to have an Ospo. I'm just like, wow, that's really cool. And it's surprising to me seeing the way that as new industries and new verticals and new areas are starting to realize the impact of open source, how they are looking to the Ospo structure, really to be able to help them set that strategy because it turns out retail is now figuring out that open source is pretty important so they're looking at creating ospos that's great i'm a lot more excited <laughs> I'm a lot more excited about what i'm seeing happening outside of the private sector because the private sector is cool but to a certain extent i feel like that playbook is largely written um and it needs uh it needs some heavy lifting and work done around the idea of what does this mean for the smaller medium enterprise or the minimum viable ospo where you have one human being who's handling all of your open source stuff and They're going to be the only person that's in the budget to handle that. Uh, And that's good work, and I'm confident that that will be done. I'm way more excited about what I'm seeing in terms of the creation of OSPOs for public administrations and the idea that as a matter of policy, we are going to create and institutionalize this concept of the OSPO within public administration agencies, or as a matter of public policy, for a couple of reasons. One, again, let's let's go back to public money, public code. I am a big believer in that as a statement and as an outcome, so that's, that's wonderful. And there is no reason why we should not look to share and repurpose resources that are built for the public interest to other organizations that can use them and, again, have taxpayer revenue be spent in, in other ways that improve the lives of our citizens, right? That's fantastic. But it's also... By creating this concept of the OSPO, by institutionalizing this, we're doing a couple of different things, right? One, there are people in all kinds of different public administrations and different agencies, or maybe it's just, you know, the one person at the municipal level in a little town who gets that open source is really going to matter. And they have no idea how to find each other because who would think to go look in the Ministry of the Interior or, you know, No one knows what's happening in such and such little town, right? And where do you meet? How do you find people? Especially in in our days where, you know, once upon a time when I heard from folks, like, I'm interested in having conversations about open source in the transportation industry. Well, it used to be my answer was, do a dev room at FOSDEM to find all your friends, I'll help you. Clearly, that's not the answer right now. So this idea that we're institutionalizing the concept of the OSPO as a way to build a network of like-minded individuals who can collaborate with one another and help support each other's work and help share those best practices that actually work for public administrations is huge. And I also note, you know, as I've already talked about, the playbook has largely been written for corporations. I am keenly aware that there is a tendency on the part of some folks who are involved in open source and who have been you know, open source program office professionals throughout their entire careers. I'm kind of one of those people. You know, we think that we already know how to do it because we've already done it, and we've done it for a really long time. And the answer to that question is absolutely not, because what works for a corporation is not going to work for a public administration, is not going to work for an academic institution. And we also tend to I'm about to say things that make that are going to make me sound silly. but I'm going to say them anyway. When you're really good at something and you've done it for a really, really long time, you think you know exactly what someone needs to do and sometimes you forget that the first thing that you need to do when you have these kinds of interactions is say what problem are you trying to solve what is difficult for you because it turns out what's difficult for a company is not the same thing as what's difficult for a public administration you can say you're always going to have trouble finding budget for your initiatives well that's true in a public administration it's true in a company it's true in an academic institution how that actually plays out depending on the entity who you're talking to, is completely different. There are completely different paths to success. And this is why I'm excited about the OSPO and institutionalization of the OSPO as a construct to help folks in public administrations network and share best practices and help each other. Because those problems are going to be remarkably similar to one another. They're not going to be the same problem that my favorite hardware chain here in Germany is having with their open source program. And the other place where I'm seeing the development of open source program offices as a, as a construct is actually back in the United States, right? We're seeing a hugely increased set of activity around the idea of creating the open source program office as an institutional home of, you know, knowledge sharing and best practices for open source in the academy. And this is everything from, you know, what are the research programs looking like for undergraduates or graduate students so that open source software is a part of their research and that the output of their research projects is available as open source, both for experiment reproducibility, but also, you know, in the hopes that perhaps this work can be long-term maintained and is not just kind of like a, I wrote some cool code for my graduate thesis and now I'm out of here, right? Like it can be a a much more long-term sustainable endeavor. I don't know that I have heard a lot about OSPOs at academic institutions here in Europe, and I am sure that that is my own ignorance. The place that I've heard about the most, and probably because I have lots of friends in Ireland, is at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. They have their own open source program office and they they have used that. Again, they have institutionalized it and used it as a vehicle for understanding how they're able to do technology transfer, which means taking research done at the university and then moving that research into the private sector where it can be, a business can be crafted around it and that business crafted around it ends up providing revenue back to the university to execute on all of its mission and goals and serving students. So I believe we'll see more OSPO's and academic institutions. I'm thrilled at the flowering of the OSPO concept for public administrations because it it gives, it gives all of those folks who, who have a vision and, a, and passion and purpose a structure to rally around and in which to operate and in which to, to talk about what they are trying to accomplish with a common vocabulary so that they can get the conversations that they've been having with a couple of their buddies at the same agency who are like-minded and then widen that conversation and find way more opportunities, I think, for, for collaboration and mutual benefit. It's really exciting, especially as a as someone who's thinking about like, what does the future look like for you know citizen, citizen privacy and making sure that as we're developing systems that serve our, serve our citizens here in Europe, that we're doing so in a way that respects our, our citizens' human rights, right? It's thrilling to me. I'm
1: pretty sure we're going to see an uptake of hospitals in academia uh, soon, because we already see a lot of movement in the open science, especially here in Europe. And they're not the same, but they are related, of course. So I think they will strengthen each other. I really liked your notion about talking about the playbook. And literally, you've been writing a chapter of communication in something that's sort of a playbook, like the open source way. Mm-hmm. and. Thinking about it as a communications problem rather than community, have you seen like projects fail because of bad communication? Is that sort of what motivated you to write it?
2: Well, what motivated me to write it was that we were looking to do the 2.0 version of the open source way as a, as a guidebook for community managers and a dear friend who is also a Red Hat colleague was the managing editor and he was talking to folks about how they should write. And I thought I just, Write something. Again, going back to that, what is the importance of your community dynamics? Is that when your friend says, I need help writing something, you sit down and you write eight pages, which before you would have been like, I don't have time for that. And the other, the reason that I specifically chose to focus on communication norms is it is, it is so easy to assume that everyone else understands what we are doing, because we understand it. And the more skilled you become at something, the more quickly you lose perspective on what is not obvious to other people. Um, I think that the quote, and I I may be mangling the quote, but uh, a gentleman by the name of Carl Fogel many years ago wrote a book called Producing Open Source Software. And one of the points that he made in the chapter about documentation was documentation is the least useful to the folks who are most capable of writing it. Because they already know, they already know. So when I look at how projects are successful, they they over communicate and they document and they they reiterate information repeatedly in order to make sure that everyone understands and that the information is clear. And I think especially when we're dealing with nerds or uh, geeks or whatever we're calling ourselves these days, we have this software principle, right? Don't repeat yourself. Okay? And yet, that's fabulous for software development. And we may get a little bit annoyed that we're going over the same thing over and over again. But the fact is, like, just because we know it by heart doesn't mean the person who just joined the room has ever heard this before. And proceeding under the assumption that they understand the foundation and how things work and why they work that way, like, we really thought about it. And we're super intentional about how we put these things into place. It's a bad assumption. And it's one that I've seen happen over and over and over again in open source projects and community projects and projects, period, because typically when a project starts, all of the original participants are well aligned. They talk to each other frequently. They are in regular contact and they have a shared vision either because they have a, it's a software team at a company. They have a corporate mandate to create this software, but then it turns out it's going to be used by six different groups of the company. Or it's a group of friends and we all got together to write this cool open source software because we were tired of not having a place to post community conferences on a calendar or whatever. Then the project is useful. The project solves needs for people who are not just you. And then more people come along and they want to contribute. And all of these assumptions and all of these pieces of information that were well understood by everyone who's originally there are no longer well understood by everyone. And so... I wanted to write this chapter because understanding that you have to be intentional and methodical and you cannot over communicate if you want a healthy community is vital in sustaining any project of any kind, be it an open source project, be it a software project inside of your company, be it local charity that raises money for my kids' daycare. Like You you have to have a communication strategy. You have to understand why you're communicating that way. You have to understand the impact. And you also need to understand how you, particularly, how you communicate to other people about where you need their help and how they can give you that help. Because otherwise, you either have no help showing up because everyone thinks you've got it, or you have people showing up to help you with things where it's very kind that they made the offer, but it's just not the help that you need. And you don't want to take that energy and that passion and turn it away and discourage them from participating. You, you're going to need that help later. How do you keep them engaged right now? And this is all about communicating effectively, setting expectations, doing what you say you are going to do. And you know, people do really, really well in environments where they understand what is expected of them, what they need to do, and how they can plug in. And that's just about setting the foundation for success in any endeavor whatsoever. Leslie, Red Hat has been supplying solutions to
0: public organizations for many years all over the world. Do you have any nice examples of solutions for public organizations?
2: Yeah, so um, well, I'm going to okay, so talk about one that I'm really excited about because I, I even got to talk to these nice people for a little bit. So first of all, I'm a huge fan. I admit all my biases. Like, I really like my employer. That's why I work there. And I'm a huge fan of my buddies in Red Hat's labs project. So this is a group of folks who provides sort of strategic coaching to executive leadership on how to implement principles of open source software projects as part of how they design their leadership culture and their organizational culture. And this goes all the way from like, kind of, let's talk to the C-suite to Let's talk to the developer teams as they're figuring out how to create a product by soliciting feedback from all of the appropriate stakeholders in their organization and how to rapidly iterate to produce you know, a minimum viable product and then go from there. So our Red Hat Labs team also has a component to it called our social innovation program. And this is a group of folks within Red Hat Labs who do their work gratis for, or excuse me, I should, uh, free of charge at no cost to different organizations that are doing something for the public benefit. So last year, our social innovation program folks with Red Hat Labs worked with the World Health Organization. And the World Health Organization had a learning management system that needed improvements because in addition to providing information to first responders and medical professionals all over the world about a wide variety of ways in which they needed to contribute to bettering public health, suddenly now we had COVID. So all of the same work and all of the same dedication needed to be there, in addition to having rapid response updates for rapidly changing information in response to the pandemic. So the social innovation program team worked with the World Health Organization to create improvements to their learning management system on top an entirely, you know, open source code base so that they could do these rapid deployments, get information to first responders and physicians much more quickly. And in addition to you know, learning the the ins and outs of of architecting for, uh, again, all of this on top of an open source platform. They were also learning about the processes of working in an open source way, according to open source project development methodologies and agile practices that allowed them to complete their work much more rapidly and much more iteratively and to have that set of continuous improvement. So there were any number of activities that this team went through. But if folks are excited or interested in learning more about this, I would recommend visiting the Open Practice Library. And the Open Practice Library is a a Red Hat curated set of resources, some of which are written by Red Hat folks, many of which are community contributed, that talk through some of the processes for developing a software project from the the human element and development angle. So things like... How do you set up a social contract so that everyone in your team knows how to work well together and what is is expected of them? And in addition to all of this great work that was done in the open practice library, one of the things that our labs team undertook as we were all switching to uh, virtual only interactions was to take all of those practices in the open practice library and, and rewrite many of them from the perspective of how do you do these activities virtually? Because, you know, we cannot sit together in a room and move post-it notes around on a board to figure out what we all think about a, a particular set of topics. But they were able to suggest some tools to use to mimic that environment and also to look at ways to increase the feelings of psychological safety and effective communication when we're in a virtual first environment. And we don't, we don't necessarily, you know, we all, we're human, right? Our brains give us dopamine when we talk to people in person. Turns out they don't do it uh, on a Zoom call. And that, that has an impact on how people work together. Right. You know, we are, we are products of our biochemistry. Right. So anyway, that's just one of my favorite stories because I, um, it's always about your friends, right? The woman who runs our social innovation program at Red Hat, Alexandra Machado. I have so much, I have so much respect for her and the, the ways in which Red Hat is able to contribute to the common good through the work that she's She's leading through our social innovation program and then the tireless hours from our agile practitioners and our technology experts who, you know, who spend the, their time with Red Hat customers, but also with these institutions who are just ensuring that the world is a good and safe place for all of us. It brings a lot of joy to my heart to know these folks and to see the impact of what they've produced.
1: Allowed who you emphasized working in an open source way in the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. And we of course have the sort of the other end of it with the definition. And you've been in the board of the open source initiative who's created one definition for open source. How valuable, and I think this is gonna be in two parts and you choose how you answer to them. So how valuable is it to sort of have this definition of it? And secondly, are we lacking some sort of vocabulary to be collaborating efficiently in the open source movement?
2: Those are two excellent questions. Okay, so I'm gonna start about the importance of a shared vocabulary. So there's a couple of different things going on with the open source definition. So one is the open source definition is important in that it provides an understanding of how software licenses, which are legal documents, must be constructed in order to meet a set of requirements that means that they are open source. And this is everything from you know, non-discrimination in terms of field of use Two, people should be able to access the source code and run it and modify it, et cetera. So that's important because that tells lawyers how to be able to choose licenses that are in use in the organization and therefore companies can make product-based decisions about the software they're using. And also to be able to mitigate risk to the organization based on whatever those choices may, may be. And that's important because it turns out understanding the rules is vital for a corporation, which is not a thinking, feeling individual, but is in fact a group of people working together toward a vision for that corporation to be able to get stuff done. Every person needs to be able to understand what they are engaging with, how they are going to engage with it, and what is the outcome expected of that engagement. And the open source definition and that shared vocabulary allows people to have that that common framework, right? And it's it's very clear and it's very well spelled out and it's been time-tested that this is a definition upon which we can all agree. We may not think it is the right definition, but it is a definition upon which we can all agree. And if without a common understanding, things just don't happen. And this is everything from years spent casting FUD on open source software because open source licenses weren't well understood and how do they interact with one another? And the, the answer is instead you should purchase proprietary software because then you don't have to be confused by all that. Unfortunately, we're, I think, largely past that now. But there is no, there's just no human endeavor in which not having... A good understanding of what you're doing leads to a good result. Like people need like we I I call them the rules of engagement, which I kind of don't like because it sounds so militaristic. And like as an American who's now lived in Europe for seven years, I guess, I'm I'm like so much more conscious of the ways in which Americans tend to use like militaristic language as part of our metaphors and stuff. So I hate the rules of engagement to some extent because it's like it sounds like on a battlefield. But it really is. It's like, what is expected of you when you come here? How does it work? And what is the expected outcome for your participation needs to be well understood by everybody so they know whether or not they want to show up and actually do it. And I think the open source definition provides us with that foundational understanding from the perspective of how is software to be used according to the terms of this legal document that defines its use, because it turns out legal documents are also very useful in having a common understanding of how something happens, right? And can you remind me of the second part of your question? Because I just said a lot of, like, lawyerly things.
1: No, <laughs> yes, no, it's great. And the second part is, is there something we still are lacking to make us even better collaborators?
2: Oh, I think we need, this one's, this one's tough, but I will. I will say, I will say it anyway. I think we're lacking a decent way to think about the issues that have been brought forward by folks who are looking at the ethical open source movement. So like when when these folks are talking about like open source as a, an enterprise lacks a mechanism for ensuring that the outputs of this software are ethical, are not harmful to humanity, to citizens, to certain groups based on the way that they're created. Because the non-discrimination aspect of the open source definition, you could say, can have equally harmful impacts. So you can use the same open source software to create a guided missile system or to create a smart traffic system that means that there is far less pollution on the roads in your city by the open source definition because there's no discrimination. And I am not speaking for the ethical open source movement at all. I just know they exist and I appreciate the thoughts they are having. You know their their idea is that's not you know that's not in keeping with the spirit and the values of what free and open source software is supposed to be and we should be making sure that you know as people are creating outputs that the outputs of those software are ethical and that it is developed in an ethical fashion to the creators and also for the end consumers and the trouble is that absolutely does not match the open source definition as it stands and this is one of the this is one of the challenges right of any movement that is evolving if you change the open source definition to include these precepts, it changes the foundation of common understanding that we've had that has always gone before about how this stuff works and why it works this way and what is expected of us, what outcomes can we expect and how do we participate? And that is, that's hugely problematic because the entire world works proceeding along the assumption that things work a certain way. And effectively, what that means is you have things like the ethical source license, which are actually proprietary software licenses, because they do not meet the open source definition. And yet I would advocate to you that it's a very fine software license, and that people should consider it if that is in keeping with their value system when they produce code. But because it does not meet the open source definition, there are any number of ways in which that code having a by definition proprietary software license is in a position to not be adopted or not be commingled with other code that is open source. And that's, that's really challenging. I don't have a good answer to that question. I wish I did.
1: And and that's fine. Also, it's, it's (laughs) it's, it's something that might be worth thinking about in the future. Yeah.
2: Well, and, and I also, I also see, to me, I see and maybe this is way off base, but I still see it anyway. Like when we hear things like public money, public code, to me, the, there, there is an implied value system statement in that, right? Which is if the taxpayer is paying money into the public system in order to create better outcomes for citizens, then the results of their expenditure should be available for everyone in the public to use and to modify and to repurpose. And that's not just a, that's not just a policy statement. We cannot pretend that that is, you know, a sense of fair play is not something that we can pretend is neutral, or does not have an emotional component to it, or does not have an ethics component to it, right? So, so as we're thinking about, questions like public money, public code, I think that that naturally also leads us into discussions about like, what is the ethical production of software and the ethical consumption of software look like? How do we work on those questions when we may all come from different points from a perspective of ethics? We tend to leave questions of ethics out of the discussion because we are all allowed to have our own thoughts and points of view. And we absolutely are. But it turns out as a species with our different points of view and our different expected outcomes, we're all facing the same challenges climate change, global pandemic, people being burned out because they don't have childcare for their kids while they're stuck at home. We have reached a point in our existence where I think it's much harder to separate out those questions of ethics and personal value systems from every decision that we are now making as individual citizens and groups of people working together to produce stuff, because we can no longer pretend that they're separate.
0: Leslie, we've talked a lot in this interview about the present of communities, but um. I'm curious to know what are your views or what are your thoughts on new trends that are going to be very present from now on in open source
2: community building? Sure. Absolutely. So I'm going to start with what are some trends I see, and then I'm going to talk about what keeps me up at night. So one of the trends that I am, well, I can't say that I'm seeing it, but this is a a trend that I feel is true. Uh, so back at the... Um, the start of everybody going into lockdown, one of the requests from Red Hat CTO to his open source program office staff was to say, you know, what does the future of community look like given we can't engage in community in the way we typically do where we have lots of events? And there is an expectation that even asynchronous, completely online development is going to have an in-person component to it at like, say, a developer meetup, et cetera. And one of the points that I thought to be true was that the the changes in the world due to COVID were going to make people far more aware of their existence in a specific time and in a specific place. It's very easy to think of yourself as a global citizen if you are at many different conferences and one day you're in the Czech Republic and the next day you're in France and the next day you're in you know, Boston, Massachusetts. It's very different when you are consistently in the same place. And I think that for a lot of folks, particularly those engaged in the production of technology, we became kind of unmoored from our sense of being in a place because we were engaging with technology so much. Things were changing so rapidly in the technology world. We had so many different devices giving us inputs. Like we hear it as the story all the time. Like it doesn't matter where you work from. You could be taking your phone call from the beach. And it actually matters a lot where you are. And, um, and we all kind of had the opportunity to think that through. And my, my thesis was that because of that change and because people were going to see organizations' budget shifting away from travel and away from this idea of a push towards in-person collaboration, you know, and, and, a, and a need to rely on virtual collaboration, we were going to see a huge uptick in the value of the small scale local community event after we return to normal, whatever the heck that means now, because people want to see other people and they want to engage with other people, but they are going to want to engage with people who have the same understanding of the place where they are and that very moment in time where they are there in that same place together. And also things like, We have different ideas about caution and about how we engage with the world now, just because, you know, once upon a time, I wouldn't have thought twice about, you know, I get on an airplane and I go someplace because I need to go there for work or because I need to, you know, my dad still lives in California. I didn't think much about living in Germany with dad in California a long time ago. Well, now when I start asking myself questions about where am I going to be amongst folks with whom I am like-minded and I enjoy their company, I do not think that it is always a great idea to go far away across an ocean and across a continent in order to do that. I think the world changes rapidly and sometimes things happen that we cannot anticipate. And I think I would prefer to go to the conference in Southern Germany instead of to go to the conference that is in, that is in San Francisco, right? And so I think we're going to see this huge uptick in like, when we get back to normal. There's gonna be more community meetups. There's going to be more of those like smaller scale conferences that folks like to participate in that are not necessarily like the big, I don't even know how to explain Like This is like the worst possible metaphor, so I apologize, but like the number of people who are gonna wanna go to the like Apple Worldwide Developers Conference versus the number of people who are gonna wanna go to their local DevOps days thing. Local DevOps days, through the roof. Fewer and fewer people are going to want to go to these big shindigs. And there's any number of very good reasons for it. And I also have a lot of joy in that prediction insofar as when I look at the overall trajectory of kind of general open source conferences, both back in the United States, but also here in in Europe, like the, you know, once upon a time, there was a regional Linux tog or Linux day in every town, well, not every town, but like lots of towns throughout Germany. And like, you know, those, those kind of, stopped happening as people got older and their interests changed and, you know, Linux became more ubiquitous and well understood. And I think what we'll see is we'll see a resurgence of this notion of kind of the, the open source community conference, but as more of a locus of community bonding activity, engagement, and a, a like a social I want to say social preservation structure. That doesn't make any sense. Like, okay, so I think of this one conference that I know about FrostCon, right? And they've, they've had, been doing this for like 20 years. They have, they've had childcare on site since the first year. They have a bunch of families who show up there with their kids. And like, yeah, I mean, you can go to a great session on, ham radios or the latest, you know, single sign on technology or whatever. But, you know, frankly, most people are there because they want to go to a talk, but they're really excited that we're going to have a big barbecue at the end of the event. And we're all going to sit down together and the vegans are going to have the cool crowds a lot and the little like potato patties and like people are over here eating worst. And that's the best part of it. And the, and the fact that the children are there and are learning, With other children, this spirit of community engagement and collaboration, and you can create things with your world, and there are kids activities for soldering stuff and things like that. I think we're going to, again, that kind of activity is going to be so much more important from a community perspective in the future. And I, I think that this is actually a very, I think it's a very interesting opportunity for corporations who are looking at what their community engagement strategy looks like going forward, because- after something like this, you're going to see a reduced marketing budget, you're going to see a reduced travel budget. And you're also going to need to fight even harder for people's attention span. Because in addition to all the things that distracted us, most of us are at the point now where unless what you have to say to me actually makes my life better, I don't care. I've been through enough and I'm done. So if it's not going to help me, I don't want to listen to you. And I don't want to waste your time trying to talk to me about it. Cool. Why not? That sounds great. Sounds very efficient to me. And so it turns out, Giving a couple of giving 5,000 currency units to a little local, you know, Linux tag kind of event or buying the I'm so tired of people buying beer and pizza, buying the veggie and dip platter so that we can all have some fiber in our diet for the local meetup is gonna be a great use of your funds if you want to market into a particular community because you're giving them something valuable, you're acknowledging their needs, and you're not trying to do some big song and dance to show them they should pay attention to you. You're doing exactly what you need to do to get them to pay attention, which is to show that you actually understood what they needed and you gave it to them and you didn't expect anything in return. You understood that cultivating a relationship with them was gonna have value. And that's, that's where your right. expectations ended. Um, and do I need to stop talking? Cause I have more stuff to say, but I feel like we, I've talked too much now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we, we're coming to the hour here. So yeah, I think it's a good time. We, we do have one last question that we always ask yes. our uh, guests here. I'm sure who else would you like to see on here and be interviewed by
2: us? Oh, I have a very long list. Um, okay. So, um,
1: start at the top.
2: Okay, so one person I would suggest you wonderful human beings have on the show because she is a brilliant human being and she knows a lot about what's going on with sort of public sector activity in Ireland is a lady by the name of Claire Dillon. She is the person who runs the Open Ireland Network group on LinkedIn and she can tell you more things about like what the folks at Trinity College in Dublin are doing far better than I ever could. I would recommend, uh, there's such a long list. So there's a wonderful group of folks in the Czech Republic who are working on something called the Open Cities Project. And they are, they have already created some software that is open source that has been used by public administrations for various tasks. And they're looking to bring that code to more cities within the Czech Republic. And so that's pretty exciting. And that's um, Lucy and Yuri. And I am not going to pronounce their last names because I will do a terrible job and I don't want to be disrespectful to them. And I would also say another another individual that I would encourage you know folks to, to consider bringing on the program is... This is going to sound so butt-kissy. Uh, so my boss, Deborah Bryant at Red Hat, has been doing open source and public administration stuff for years, and in addition to her own accomplishments within kind of the United States' public sphere, right, she, when I first got to know her more than 10 years ago, or 15 years, I have known Deb for a long time, you know, she was the one person who you could reliably depend upon within, you know, our community in the U.S. who knew what other public administrations, what other governments were doing in the area of open source software, when the rest of us had absolutely no clue like she could tell you what was happening in Spain, what was happening in Japan, and, da, 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 you know, her her network was vast. Her knowledge of the space was unmatched. And she's done some amazing work in terms of the history of the United States for bringing together the right folks who started implementing public policy that favored open source. And, um, you know, that might not have uh, Perhaps it didn't go the direction we had hoped it would go, but I mean it was there, and she was there, and she was doing all the right things. So, plus, I just I love talking to Deb, so I would I would recommend so so Claire, Deb, and uh, Lucy and Yuri I think would be great future guests for you folks. all
1: ah, well, great suggestions. Thank you. Yeah,
2: awesome. So this cool.
1: has been a very nice chat, but unfortunately we have to wrap it up.
0: Yeah, thank you all for your time, and of course it's been great talking to you, Leslie. Yeah, thank you,
1: Leslie.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. If you ever want me to come on the show again, please let me know. And um, I'm happy to... This was so much fun. This is like the best meeting I've had today. Yay! Uh (laughs) Great. (laughs) great.
0: Thanks, everybody. Thank you. And uh, I would also like to remind you that uh, you can already subscribe to the podcast at uh, podcast.publiccode.net.
1: And if you want to join us live next time and join the chat, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel where you can also watch all our previous episodes.
0: That's right. And uh, yeah, let's talk about public code. We'll be back with a new episode in January. And uh, as for me, I unfortunately have to announce that this was my last episode as a host of the show since I am starting a new professional endeavor in January. However, it has been a real pleasure Getting to know so many great folks and uh, interesting members of our community this year.
1: And you will be missed, but I'm sure we're going to see you around somehow. Thank you. And for any of you viewers, if you want to engage in some of our more interactive sessions, you can also join us in our community calls, and you can sign up to them in the link in the footer of our website at publicco.net. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.